the IBM Z applications and runtime podcasts. Your place to get the newest trends and direction for mainframe runtimes and environments. Hi, and welcome to another episode from our Application Platform Talks podcast series. This is where we chat to experts involved with the runtimes to talk about topics in their areas of expertise. Um, my fellow collaborator in all this is Toby Leischer from Germany. So, Toby, once again, a joy to work with you. Hello, it's a pleasure. Now, today, we're actually recording this uh, just before Christmas. I'm not sure when it will actually get published, but uh, it's this recording is just before Christmas. So we've dusted off the eggnog. We've eaten a couple of mince pies in preparation to talking to our guest speaker today, who is Will Yates um, from the Hursley uh, testing team. And he's going to give us some insight into automated testing and how the sort of benefits that automated testing can bring to developing applications for mainframes. So, Will, thank you for giving us your time today. Hey, guys. Yeah, I've got my Santa hat on. Uh, I've got some tinsel wrapped around my neck. Um, and, yeah, Merry Christmas. And have you got Carol there? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, so, no. Um, a little bit of housekeeping first. This recording will be made available on our ibm.biz forward slash Z podcasts website. And you'll find many more podcasts, not only on application platforms, but on other related topics uh, with IBM Z. So now to kick off, Will, before we go into the journey of automated testing um, on IBM Z machines, Let's hear a little bit about Will the Man, Will the Thespian, oh, Will yeah. the Magician, and how you became involved uh, with mainframe computers. Yeah, okay. So I guess when I was uh, younger, I, I kind of had a lot of many different hobbies. I, I did a lot of um, magic. So I did um, stage magic. I did close-up magic. Um, kind of paid my way through uh, college by doing uh, magic shows for kids' birthday parties. Um, but I also did some kind of uh, amateur dramatics, um, some Shakespeare plays, and I can still recite uh, most of Caliban's soliloquies from The Tempest pretty much from heart. Um, but the thing that I always seem to go back to was the aging 386 computer that we had in the lounge. And before that, we had a 286, and then we had a Commodore 64 and a Dragon, and we had lots of different types of computers. And I remember the first day we got a computer with the internet, you know, a 28K BPS modem, really, really old. Well, old now, but at the time, you know, it was cutting edge. And going online, you know, building my first website, you know, learning HTML4 from a book, um, you know, when you still had big books about just HTML. And I really enjoyed just working with the computer or doing stuff on the computer. And I think that kind of started to overtake a lot of my other hobbies. And I found myself at the computer doing stuff or researching stuff more and more. Um, and that kind of then started to color a lot of my kind of educational choices. I started doing a lot more mathematics, a lot more um, IT because the college I didn't do computer science. And yeah, that ended up with me doing a, um, a degree in computer science. And where where did you do that, Will? So that was at the University of Portsmouth, but it was 
part of an IBM degree scheme. So I spent uh, three days a week working for IBM um, in Portsmouth and then uh, two days a week on day release doing my um, degree. So the idea was that at the end of it, you had three years worth of work experience uh, with IBM as well as a, a degree in computer science. So that's the old North Harbour location, I guess. Absolutely. So um, I, I, I remember uh, one of my first days there, uh, helping out to rebuild some machines in their big machine room and running cables and installing <laughs> servers. Oh, it was all good fun. So then how did you end, wind up with Hursley? So at the time, I couldn't drive. So because the course was based out of uh, Portsmouth and Hursley's, for those that don't know the UK, Hursley's around about a 40 minute, 40 to 45 minute drive away from Portsmouth. But I didn't drive. So getting there was going to be difficult. But it was always the kind of the, the shining jewel in the crown, as it were. A lot of my colleagues on the course um, who did drive had jobs in Hursley and would often regale us of how wonderful Hursley was. So I really wanted to end up working at Hursley. So at the end of my degree course um, and the end of my contract with IBM, I reapplied to rejoin IBM as a software graduate. And when they asked, would you like to work in Portsmouth or in Hursley? I kind of said, well, first choice would definitely be Hursley. So um, I got accepted after you know interviews and uh, selection centers and what have you. I, I was accepted and I got a job working for the Kicks team in Hursley. So I then had to um, figure out how I was going to get myself to Hursley every day. So I guess the company car helps there. Then. <laughs> well, well, it, it, it did. It, it, it does now. Uh, but at the time, it was a train journey. So um, it was a train journey. So I think I was leaving around half past six in the morning to get on a train to go up to uh, Winchester and then a bus to Hursley. Um, so it kind of elongated my day. But that was fine because I, I had one of the uh, I had an IBM ThinkPad, which was was absolutely wonderful because it meant I could actually do a bit of work on the train, you know, on the way into work and on the way back. So um, that that ThinkPad got a little bit battle tested, uh, bouncing along on the train each day. So, what sort of area did you work in when you joined Kicks? Ah, so when I joined Kicks, it was completely different to the work I'd been doing for the three years previously. The, the three previous years had been very much infrastructure support. So. Um, you know, I, we had a, a set of racks in the DPMR that were we had to look after. We were building new um, infrastructure for new projects, um, as well as looking after existing um, infrastructure projects. But I then got the the, the new job, and I was going to be working on the Kicks team as a as a tester. And I, I remember being told by my new manager that they looked at my CV and thought, "Hey, you are you, you've done um, some work with web services." Now, we've done maybe a, a course in web services at university. And so, so we're going to put you on the web services project. So I got started uh, writing test cases, automated test cases for um, the web services support we put in kits back in version 3.1. And I guess that was my first real, real attempt at just writing automated tests. I'd never done that kind of work before. And... My job was literally to sit and we were testing all of the different language mappings and uh, SOAP constructs to language mapping support. So we were writing an awful lot of automated test programs. So I think within my first week, I had to write like uh, 20 or 30 different C programs for Kick. So 
I think for the first couple of months of my job, um, like I said, on, on that train journey, I was um, using using a, a, the tooling to write uh, lots of C programs on that train journey um, to and fro. And of course, at that time, we didn't have I didn't have a, a compiler for, for that C code on my laptop. Um, so I was pretty much working blind for the first couple of months. Uh, the tooling is now obviously an awful lot better. But then, you know, you were kind of just writing the code and then getting home and then compiling it and hoping that you, you hadn't made any mistakes. Ooh, that, I, I think that helped a lot with becoming a good programmer then because I, th I, th I sometimes feel today people are more in this like, oh, yeah, compiling doesn't cost anything anymore. So every save is a new compile and I just don't think about it a lot. I just let the compiler do all my all my fixing of the code. So 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 that sounds like a, quite a good exercise. So Yeah, I, I think the harder bit was when you did get back and you did do a compile um, because obviously you'd written quite a bit of code at that point. Um, the kind of having to go back to the code that you, you, you wrote at the beginning because the compiler found an error in that and kind of remembering what you were trying to achieve. <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. So so the train ride was probably a little bit long then. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so what did you think about Z when you, when you started there? Because, I mean, coming fresh from the university, knowing something about web services and then coming to Z maybe was kind of a let's say an interesting experience so what what did you think about it when you when you arrived first um i i i was kind of amazed by it all that these machines seemed so big so powerful so important i was kind of impressed that they were letting uh, someone straight out of university have an idea on one of these machines and were letting them just you know have a look around and see what they could do i did find the interface a little bit jarring initially But you, you learn, you learn to kind of love these things and you also learn the tooling that kind of comes with it. And if I look back to where we were when I started in Kicks and on the IBM Z platform and look at what we can do now on the platform in terms of making that transition of interface a lot easier, I think we've, we've made mm. huge strides. We're, we're nowhere near where we need to be, but we've definitely gone a, a long way to making it a lot easier for people to kind of access but i guess my my biggest feeling was this is such an important platform and it was an area of computing that we hadn't touched at all in the three years that i'd been at university there was nothing on mainframes at all they'd been talking about high performance computing and uh, wonderful networking hardware that would allow amazing throughput of data but there was nothing about the mainframe at all um, so to kind of understand what it did and how it worked, it, it was a huge learning curve, but it, it was really interesting. And I think I think for all the listeners out there, this is also kind of encouraging, is it? Because um, you don't need to find these people that have learned everything already in the university. And sometimes people say like, oh, yeah, and it used to be like that. And everyone knew it from the university. But um, I, I think like me, Will, you've been around with, with Z now for quite some time. And even at that time back then when we did our studies, there was no talking about mainframes anymore. So I think I think there is still a quite a good chance that you can you can motivate people with, with, with these machines. Also, because as you say, they just run the... The interesting workload, not like the cantina plan, but the real interesting stuff. So, so, so I hope that is encouraging for our listeners that you just need to go out. It, it is very interesting. I remember doing a um, a share breakfast and learn session 
And it was going to be titled The Mainframe Skill Shortage. And we we had this packed room. And the guy I was speaking with, um, a gentleman called Andrew Bates, had basically done a whole load of research searching the internet for a, a specific skill and um, the word shortage. And he found uh, apparent skill shortages in like the, the world of fishing or paint mixing and DIY. And he was basically making the point that the mainframe skill shortage isn't something that we're going through alone. It's not something yeah. that is specific to the mainframe. In fact, if you look to any industry, you will find that they are probably saying there's a skill shortage at, at different points in time. The difference with the mainframe is that we have something that is vitally important to the to the economy and to you know a, a large proportion of the world's business. It's an exciting forward-looking platform, and it's something that people can join and can learn about and can do great things with. So I think that's actually should be very um, enlightening and very helpful to people who are going about looking and saying, well, I can't find people out of university with mainframe skills. You don't need those people. You need people who have got a, a good approach to computer science and to computer engineering, show them the capabilities of the platform, and then allow them to teach you what they've learned in their three years of university schooling so you can all together move the platform and your use of the platform forward. It's not about saying, oh, we need mainframe skills. No, you've got mainframe skills in your organization. Bring in new people with new outlooks and teach them the mainframe skills that they need. And then you now got newer blood in your company that you can use to kind of say, well, what is the next step for the mainframe? How can we use it more? How can we improve our mainframe processes? That's the way you should be looking at it rather than, well, we just can't find any new people with mainframe skills. I can't agree more, Will. And I think it worked out quite well for you because I think, meanwhile, you became a test lead, is it? And uh, did some quite interesting stuff as well in this test area. Yeah. So I think at the time we were very much in a, I think that the kicks department as a whole was going through a transformation. We were moving from being very waterfall driven and the traditional um, kind of waterfall or V model approach to software design uh, and implementation. And we were moving towards agile. And that forced us to have a, a step change in the way we approached our testing, where we used to have, you know, a, a functional test team and a system test team, and a performance test team. And that model wasn't going to align well with, you know, the agile principles. So we set about trying to reorganize the way we approach test to say, well, what can we do differently to align ourselves better with the agile principles? And so we started to introduce things like uh, risk-based uh, testing, uh, use, use of the agile test quadrants, 10-minute uh, test plans. And we were also at that time working with a much more geographically dispersed team Not just in the UK, we always had people working in different offices around the UK, but we also had people in different countries. So applying those techniques so that everyone, regardless of their kind of uh, their, their country of origin or sorry, where they were working at the moment, could kind of apply themselves to the task in an equal way, regardless if they were remote or in the office with everyone else. Yeah, cool. And then and then something interesting happened, I think, at one point. Um, it, you 
came up with an idea of a test framework, was it? So, so, so actually, there was. I, I think when when we previously spoke about about this about this episode, you you mentioned that you that you had some some chats with customers and they looked at what you did in the in the Hersley team to make this automation happen, and then you actually came up with something uh, in the team. Is that, yeah, is that is that something yeah. you want to talk about a bit? Yeah, so I, I can't claim to have invented the test framework that we used in Insider Kicks, which is called JAT. But that was someone else, um, a, a guy called Mike Bayless. But I ended up using that framework and helping to kind of design some of its components and um, help to kind of, you know, move it forward a little bit. And was very impressed with the way that it approached automated testing. Because you, people often look at a tester and kind of will wrongly assume it's a, a manual role. Now, an awful lot of a tester's role should be manual. You should be doing exploratory, time-boxed styles of testing to understand the application that you're testing, understand how it works and where, where the defects may be. But once you've done that work, you're then creating your test legacy as you move forward. So you are creating mm -hmm. a set of automated tests that can be run as part of a CI-CD pipeline. And that's where the engineering skill of a tester really is allowed to shine because you've now got to write, uh, if you think about the amount of tests we run every day in kicks, there's just huge, huge numbers. And in order to handle that, that sheer amount of capacity we need, a test can run on um, you know, a, a range of different LPARs, Uh, on a range of different sysplexes spread across different data centers. And that test could be running on a different version of Kicks with a different level of DB2 or MQ and uh, using a different com COBOL compiler level, a whole different range of different variables. And so to be able to do that reliably, the test needs to be agnostic of its, of its environment. Hmm. It doesn't know what level of kicks it's going to be using or which LPAR it's going to be running on. Or even if that LPAR is a physical LPAR or a, a virtual LPAR, it has no knowledge. So what that framework allowed us to do was this concept of dynamic late binding. So the tester can place directives into the code, say, I'm going to be using MQ. I'll need a queue manager or I need a kicks region. I need a DB2 table. Mm. And then when that test runs, the framework initializes all of those kind of objects, binds the test to a specific environment, and then gives the test objects, Java objects, that it can use to interact with that environment, which means that the test is logically separated from the environment that it's running on up until the point it starts to run. And this mm -hmm. means you get tests that can run in parallel. You get tests that can run in huge capacity because they can run at scale because they and they can be portable because they can run on different environments. And that kind of capability is something that I thought was quite unique within the framework. It allowed us to do something that we would have found very hard to do in other test uh, frameworks mm -hmm. or test tools, um, because we were very rarely just testing kicks by itself. We were testing kicks with MQ or DB2 or with, you know, some with a WebSphere server or, um, another um, piece of software that was running outside of the mainframe. And as our scope of the types of things we needed to test grew, that framework needed to grow as well. And so we found that we were building a piece of capability that a lot of other groups in IBM were very interested in. They started to adopt it as well. 
And it was really then that we started to see customers starting to look at Agile and CI, CD pipeline, DevOps, and coming to us and saying, well, how does Kits do DevOps? And so we started speaking about the, the pipeline technologies that the team had, had built and about this test capability that we had. And that then allowed us to start looking at, uh, well, open sourcing that framework or not the exact same framework, but uh, open a version of some it. Of the, yeah, yeah, open sourcing. Open sourcing to the world. Yes. Yeah. So cool. that's what we now call uh, Project Galassa. Yeah, and I think I personally, I have a, always a very good feeling when IBM does these kinds of projects, because basically what we do is we publish something that we needed. And I personally think that the best development tools usually come out of a need and not just an idea that someone says, oh, we could development do like this or that. And that's why I usually find that these projects are the most successful ones, because It, it really solves a headache you had and the chances are very high that someone else in the world has that headache as well. And as you said, it's, it's, it's been there in somewhere in IBM, but of course it's also there with our customers that also test their stuff on different machines, that test their stuff on different runtimes, maybe have different versions of different software types to test it with. And so I, I can really imagine that a lot of customers really find this a helpful thing. So that sounds yeah. really great. Uh, just looking at our watch, I mean, uh, it doesn't feel like it, but we already nearly made it uh, to to the end of our time. So, um, and 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 I think I think we captured some great things. And and as you described it, also this whole test framework is basically something that has nothing to do with just coding some COBOL bits, but it it really opens up the world with with what you described before. You you use some knowledge that you might had collected somewhere else. And brought it into the mainframe world. And I think that is a quite, quite, quite cool thing to do and quite a, quite a good present. We can, I mean, even if this is published after Christmas, uh, we can give to our, to our, to our listeners. So, so well, why I not think, try that? I think that's really, a really important thing to say. It's when you have a diverse team and a diverse group of people looking at solving a problem, you do get those different insights that allow you to produce something that is, you no. Know, that more that that a little bit more special a little bit more useful you know um we did some work a few years ago making some demos and we built a, a demo where we could get a uh i don't want to say the name of the, the product because I'm, i'm worried about setting off speakers around the world but uh the the a name um device uh from a well-known um e-business company or e-retail company <laughs> um where we could get that device to talk to, we, we, we made a demo where you could ask that device you now, Hey, what's my bank account? And it would call off, um, into, onto the IBM network, onto a mainframe that we had running, call a Kix COBOL program, and then, you know, deliver a response. So you could talk to this device and you could speak to it. And, you know, you, you were running the code, Kix COBOL program in the back end. And the point of that demo was never to say, Hey, look, you can do, banking on one of these devices although some people are now starting to do exactly that it was more to say that it, it was an example it was a detailed in example or a, an engaging example of how you can take a, a kicks cobol program you can api enable it and then what that api enablement allows you to achieve um that may be interactions with one of these 
you know, speaker devices. It may be interactions with another application, but it was a tangible demonstration of that technology. And I'll always remember speaking to a customer and showing them this demo. And they looked up at me and said, well, this is just, this is great because I didn't think that the work I did in, in Kicks had anything to do with APIs and the API economy. I hear people in my, in my organization talk about that um, down the hallway, but I never got involved because I didn't think it was pertinent to me. What you've just hmm. demonstrated is that I do have a role to play in saying, in showing how the stuff we've got on, on the Z platform is useful to that API economy. I'm going to start getting myself invited to those phone calls. And I think that's the point of often taking a different look at things. You can create something that's engaging, that's interesting, and that can capture someone's imagination and allow them to then go forward and, you know, try it themselves or, or get involved in something they didn't think they had a part to play in. And that's really important because that's, that is, that brings good things to our platform. That brings good things to the mainframe. And if you show that to someone just leaving university and you say, Hey, look, I can get these devices to talk together. This is how you expose these assets to a more modern style of digital engagement. Then that really helps them to see the relevance of the mainframe as they leave university. And, and Will, I, I think as Toby just said, you know, the, the, this 25 minutes has just flown by and you talked a very briefly about this project Galassa. I think it would be terrific if you could bring some of your team along and we do a follow-up podcast to actually talk more about what Galassa does and what it supports because I think this this talk has been incredibly interesting. It's set out the scene, it's positioned what automated testing is and the framework that you develop. So if I could just plead as it's Christmas that you might come back and give us a second um, hour of your time? I'm sure we can do that. We can bring along some other members of the team. We can talk about Galassa uh, in more depth, what what the project is um, and why it's bringing integrated automated testing uh, to the Z platform. I I think that would be great. And it's been really interesting. I mean, I I think I introduced this as being a bit of a journey. I didn't quite appreciate it was going to be so much of a train journey for you in your early days. But (laughs) (laughs) I I do thank I do thank you for giving us the time today. Uh, Will, it's I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you, guys. Thanks for inviting me. And so, for more IBM Z podcasts, um, you can go to our IBM dot biz forward slash podcasts and you'll find other podcasts from devops from app dev around there but for now from nick and toby it's goodbye and see you on our next podcast thank guys cheers